Matt and Ryan, Expedition 44, continuing our series on eschatology. We've done an introduction and we've done a part one. This is part two and we're going to be talking about apocalyptic languages. Now, if you've watched a lot of our other films, you'll hear us talk about topology and maybe archetypes and things like that. When it comes to the end times, we still see some of that, but not so much. So first, what is a type? A type, usually we see a picture being painted in the Old Testament with a fulfillment in Jesus or the New Testament. Yeah. Since Jesus has already come and fulfilled all things, as he's said, we don't see the end as typology. Right. So you might see that, like, I have a film on Melchizedek, and a lot of people make this type reference, where Melchizedek was kind of a reference or an archetype or a type of what we see of the Messiah later. Mm -hmm. And so when it comes to end times, we have less of these conversations, because like Matt said, that's a little more difficult if it's already happened. Yeah, it's been filled in Jesus. Yeah. So we don't like labels, as we mentioned before, but we both kind of see ourselves at least, you know, somewhat in the partial preterist camp. And what that means is that we believe most of the things that have been foretold happened at 70 AD. That that's when most of that happened. Now, if we were full preterists, we would say it's all happened at 780. <laughs> and Matt and I actually feel that the majority of it probably did happen then, but there's some things associated that, you know, we don't even like to use the word end times mm -hmm. because that's problematic to us, but there's some things associated with Christ's return, let's say, and we don't want to roll those back. Like, you know, the first question I often get when no one's heard of this before is, do you think Jesus is coming back? We say absolutely yes. <laughs> he said that the same way that you saw me go, you're going to see me come back. And so we believe we take Jesus at his word there. What about tribulation? Do you believe there will be tribulations? Paul says that believers will always face trials and tribulations basically on the side of the new creation. And you made the reference before that, you know, try to go tell Christians in China that the tribulation isn't happening. Yeah, they're facing it every day. Yeah. And so, so we believe that. Again, it might be a little bit different than the end times wording that you've been familiar with, but it's, it still sits that way. What about Israel? Do we believe that Israel is part of this story? Oh yeah, absolutely. We believe that Israel ha plays a major role. I mean, Jesus was their Messiah, so all of this is wrapped up in the story of Israel, and we talked about that in our gospel series, how without Israel, there is no fulfillment of salvation. And that's what we're going to talk about today, is a lot about how all this wraps up and comes in. Now, a lot of people say to me, you're representing a vast minority group of what people think about the Bible saying this. What, what, how do you respond to that? I would say maybe it's a vast majority group in the West. Yeah. But in the history of Christianity, since the apostles, the early church, all the way up till 1830, 1840, something, a flavor of this view has been what the church believed. Yeah. There's also kind of an understanding of when you take the traditional idea that most people have of, I'm going to refer to as kind of the left behind thinking, that it actually gets pro problematic because there are a lot of astrologers like Nostradamus, and you might think of Mayan predictions or about Phoebo Apollo, and all of these ideas are very similar to this left behind thinking. And you go back even to Plato about talking about how that kind of fits with that. Yeah, escaping to the spiritual out of the physical. So one of my issues with it is that when you take that more predominant westernized, maybe American view of the left behind version of it, you're actually kind of taking the side of some pretty worldly 
philosophers at the same time. Yeah, and some pretty newer doctrine. So some of the language that you might have always heard about end times thinking gets very apocalyptic. And so you might hear Satan is going to be bound in a bottomless pit for a thousand years and say, when did that happen? Mm -hmm. You might be wondering about heaven and new earth and, and ask the question, are, are we living within those things? You might, you might say something like, you know, it talks about glory. Is, is that where we are? Or are we in tribulation? Or, or how does that work out? So the first place I think we need to go to answer some of those questions is the beginning of Revelation. What does mm -hmm. it say? So basically it says that these things are soon to take place. Yes. So if you're, if you are listening to Jesus say these things, then you would think this is going to happen pretty quick with that yep. word soon happening. Yeah. I think soon means soon. All right. And so when do they happen? It would probably mean destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Yep. If the books of the New Testament were written after that, they probably would have said something about it. Yeah, we see zero evidence that there's any talk of the destruction of the temple in any book of the Bible. And you think of something that's catastrophic, even to Christians and Jews, would at least be talked about. Yeah. Now, there's some language here that people get concerned about. And I, I want to like kind of make reference to like the blood turning red and things yeah. like that. And so I'm way into the Old Testament. Matt's into it as well. Um, some of this is what's referred to as Jewish apocalyptic language. Introduce me to that. So they would use these symbols of basically cosmic changing, blood moons, the stars falling, earthquakes, um, all this type of stuff to basically talk about change in politics, destruction, the fall of nations. This was the way that Jews talked yeah. and the way that they wrote um, poetically and also prophetically. Right. So when you're looking at that, you would think that when they're talking about this and maybe you read in Joel 2 that this might be a sign of the end, what was it referring to? I believe it's the end of the age. Yeah. We talked about this end of the age as the the end of the old covenant. The new covenant and the old covenant overlap for this short period of time between Jesus and the cross and the destruction within the generation that Jesus said and the outpouring of the spirit especially like speaking in tongues and stuff like that, was to warn all these people and also invite people into the kingdom. Okay, so let's look specifically at this. It's Matthew 24, 29. It says, But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of heaven will be shaken. What do we do with that? I mean, traditionally, that's always interpreted as, you know, when you see the the moon turn red, then you're living in the last days. And I mean, that's kind of been a big deal in the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people that saying the uh, eclipses of 2014, 15, I think there were four of those that took place where mm -hmm. this big sign of the end is here. Yeah. And there's all this conspiracy about like some planet X or something that's hiding behind the sun or the moon. And it's going to be that wormwood thing from yeah. Revelation. And but is that really what it's saying, Ryan? I don't think that's what it's saying. And so one of the things that you have to understand is that particularly in the Old Testament, in Jewish literature, but not just in Jewish literature and everything that surrounded them in mm -hmm. literature, we see this kind of language talked about. And yep. so one of them that I think I'll, I'll start with making a reference to is the the moon uh, kind of going blood red, because a lot of people land on this as mm -hmm. really like, you know, scary doom and gloom stuff. and. Red is really significant in the Bible. In yeah. fact, it's probably the most significant color. More, more specifically, it's scarlet would be the right word for it. Mm -hmm. And when you read this, it's typically tied in 
with generations and covenants because they're linked to blood. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times you see this word there. And so you might remember when Esau ate stew. And people are really surprised by this, but the Hebrew word actually doesn't say stew. It says red stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And people are like, what, what do you mean he ate red stuff? And so when they're writing this, are, are they really concerned about what he was eating? No, not really. <laughs> they're concerned about the covenant yeah. that was being made. It's this covenant that's being made and it's, it's this idea is redness is going to evoke something a lot more important than simply what he was eating mm -hmm. at the time. And so that's just one example. But... But I get a lot of people say, I can't mm -hmm. think that way, Ryan. Like, I don't understand that. And again, it's this Western culture wall that we don't mm -hmm. think that way. But occasionally we do think that way. And so, you know, I think about the Scarlet Letter, the uh, yeah. Hawthorne 1850s work. And we have no, no problem thinking that yeah. way then. But for some reason, when it comes to the Bible, it's like we, we don't want to think that kind of metaphorically sometimes mm -hmm. when it's all over the Old Testament scripture. Yep. So scarlet and harlot are two words that are linked a lot in the Old Testament yep. and they flush out into the New Testament too. And so when you talk about the beast, some people say, what about the beast? What 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 do we do with the beast and 666 and all of that stuff? Well, that's going to be one of our next videos. So we will get into Hold that. Hold on to that <laughs> yeah. one. <laughs> but we do see the harlot riding the beast. Yeah. And, and drinking the cup of the martyr's blood. And there's a city here. And a lot of times people are wondering what city this is. And so I think the more traditional view would be to say it's Rome. We kind of take this Jerusalem. Yeah. So we'll get into that a little bit more as we go. But they're kind of things that all tend to really, really point towards a lot of destruction mm -hmm. of 70 AD. Now, something you've heard us mention a few times is extra biblical sources. And we are very careful using extra biblical sources. We do not think that they are inherent. And so oftentimes you might ask, why do we even read them then? Well, it would be like me saying, have you ever read a commentary before? Yeah, without reading the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> are, are we necessarily saying this? If I hear Matt was just out reading a commentary and I'm saying, oh, Matt, you shouldn't be reading commentaries, that would kind of sound ridiculous, wouldn't it? Mm -hmm. So what these do is they give us a look, I guess, into the mind and the way of interpretation of the people of the time. And I mean, a lot of the stuff that we're going to be talking about here in a minute was contemporary with when Revelation was written. Yeah. And so if you can understand the way that they interpreted and the way that they read Jewish apocalyptic literature, especially in the East, yep. not the way we read it in the West, right? <laughs> then you can have a better picture, a more rounded biblical picture of how to interpret it basically the books of the Bible that are part of this genre, the yeah. genre of apocalyptic literature in the Jewish tradition. Now, like commentaries today, the reason these aren't scripture is because they don't always agree with themselves. You mm -hmm. get some very differing ideas in them. And so if you read some of them that were supposed to have been written, as Matt said, right around the time of Christ, right before, right after mm -hmm. it, things like that, we may not have their original manuscripts that they were written, although we do have a lot of that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but some of them are just going to kind of give us some clues with what's going on. And so there's some pretty major extra biblical sources that you've probably heard before, but then there's some really minor ones. And in America, we don't really read or talk about these very much, but in Eastern sources, this is a big deal. They're, they're reading these a lot to mm -hmm. try to find out as much as they can of little hints towards biblical thinking. And we, when you get into apocalypse, they're reading, they're reading particularly a lot about these things. Yep. And so 
one of the one of the segments that we read here there's there's quite a few of them but it's called slavic literature and so when we say that it means that it's kind of got a russian orthodox base or the byzantine empire kind of has this and there's lots of of people studying the bible within those places and cultures too and they're bringing trying to bring light to this and so as you read this there's they've got the same same set that we read about yeah. what, what are the major ones there's kind of six apocalyptic works that you refer to a lot what are the major ones so the major ones are uh, second enoch and the apocalypse of, apocalypse of abraham um, a few others are uh, first enoch uh, the apocalypse of baruch um, apocalypse of the third baruch and also fourth ezra those yeah. are some of the some of the big ones that they they refer to now i want to say my thoughts on end times don't change because of these extra biblical no. things in fact that's kind of where i'm going here is that we don't need these sources to to make a really intelligent um, framework of what the Bible says about the end times. But there's one thing that's really interesting that comes into this, and that's if you read a lot of these sources, but also minor sources, some of them are speaking in the exact same language that we see spoken in the Old Testament in mm -hmm. Daniel, and also yeah. the same words that Jesus is speaking. In yeah. fact, but then we have some of these extra biblical sources that are said to be written right afterwards, mm -hmm. and they're using the exact same apocalyptic language, and guess what they're talking about? The destruction of the temple. And they're talking this way, not just for a little while, but for many, many centuries after mm -hmm. this happens. Yeah, you see it a whole lot in um, the language of the Pharisees and stuff like that, and what they wrote after the temple was destroyed. They would talk about it in these this cosmic form of stars falling, earthquakes, blood moons, yeah. all of this stuff. And that's the way they describe basically this political overhaul and the, this destruction, this earth-shattering event for the Jews. So when you read that stuff, and you read the same words before, and then you read the same words saying this happened afterwards, it's very eye-opening. But for this conversation, let's just stick to the Bible. Yeah. Let's just have the, the biblical talk. And so mm -hmm. looking at that, you kind of talked about this idea of the cosmos falling apart. Mm -hmm. Let's get into that. Let's get into this language a little bit. What did the people of Israel represent? People of Israel we see that in the beginning God made the sun, the greater light, and the moon, the lesser light to govern the day and the night. So often stars talk about kingdoms and governments. Yeah. And that's even in the first chapter of the Bible. Yeah. And then you have the sun and the moon, and those were typically symbols of governments. Mm -hmm. And so you you start hearing all these things, and there's references all over the Old mm -hmm. Testament. I mean, we could spend a lot of time just looking at these yeah. things. If you look at today, I mean, look at all the flags out there of nations. Yeah. But you got stars, you all got moons, place, yeah. even religious symbols out there are stars, moons. It has suns, cosmic geography, per yeah. se, cosmic items depict nations and religions. Yeah, we even think of the Satan figure as being cast down from the stars. stars. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, all right, so in the Old Testament, the judgment of the nations were seen as either darkness or stars falling. Um, Things like that. So, for example, um, the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 13, we talk, he's talking about basically the destruction of Babylon. Yeah. And it says this, The stars of the heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. And that is talking about the destruction of Babylon. Yeah. Then we got Egypt. 
Yeah. We look at the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 32, 7 and 8. And I will extinguish you. I will cover the heavens and darken their stars. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon shall not give its light. All the shining lights in the heavens will be darkened over you and will set darkness on your land. Yeah. And then what about Edom? Edom is similar again. Yeah. Isaiah 34. And all the hosts of heaven will wear away and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll and the hosts will wither away as the leaf withers on the vine or as one withers from a fig tree. For my sword is um, stationed in heaven. Behold, it shall descend from the judgment upon Eden and the people whom I have devoted to destruction. And then we have Israel. And this is the one that most people kind of see, but how does how did the lights out idea play into Israel? Yeah, we see that in Amos especially, and this is because of their basically apostasy. Yeah. Um, Amos 5.18, alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light. So this is all judgment language. Mm -hmm. This yeah. is all kind of uh, deliverance, judgment, what's going to happen yeah. to these things. And, and we see it in the Old Testament where um, we're, we're asking these questions already, not yet again. Yeah. And it seems like all of this is already. Mm -hmm. it's all, we've, we've gotten these words that say it happened. Yeah. Now, Ezekiel 38 kind of talks specifically about judgment deliverance. What, what, what do you make of this? So Ezekiel 38, a lot of people attribute that, that it hasn't happened yet because it's in this Gog and Magog, yeah. which is a lot of people connect to like the um, last battle. Right. You know, and it says it hasn't happened because it, it uses this apocalyptic language of um, basically stars falling and, and this out of the other, and they, they tie it to that it hasn't happened yet. Yeah. But if you look at over in Psalm 18, it's kind of interesting. It mimics the exact same language uh, as Ezekiel 38. Um, so one of the big things in, in Ezekiel 38, um, I'll, I'll just read it here. It will come about on that day, Gog will come up against the land of Israel, declares the Lord, that my fury will mount up in my anger, my zeal in my blazing wrath. I will declare on that day, there will surely be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. Fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field, the creeping things that creep on the earth. All the men whose face are on the earth will shake in my presence. The mountains will be thrown down. Uh, the steep pathways will collapse. Every wall with fire to the ground. I will call a sword against them on my mountain. Every man's sword will be against his brother with pestilence and with blood I will enter into judgment. It will rain on him and his troops and all the people within him. Territorial rain, hailstones, fire, brimstone, all yeah. of this apocalyptic language. Then we look at Psalm 18. Um, which a lot of people don't read, like the kind of the prefixes to yeah. these psalms about right. what they're what they're about. You know, right. Psalm 18 it specifically says that it's when God delivered David from the hands of Saul and his his armies, and it uses the exact same language. So putting this together, we're taking Ezekiel 38, which sounds like the same words as what we read in other what make people say is apocalypse end time wording in the New Testament. It's using these words, and yet in Psalm 18, it's basically making the connection that, that already happened. Yeah, so with um, David, he attributes basically God delivering him from the hand of Saul with earthquakes and the mountains trembling and smoke coming out of his nostrils and consuming his enemy. But yet, if you look at all of the accounts of David and Saul in First and Second Samuel, do you ever see that, Ryan? I don't think so. No. Yeah. <laughs> so if we take that this language, which it specifically says in the intro of Psalm 18, that this is the account of God delivering David from Saul, yet we look at the historical account in the books of Samuel, it looks nothing alike. Right. It's symbolism. So it's this idea that this is how God is defeating enemies. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I say this 
a lot, especially when we're studying this. But if I were just going to give you these and show you this and connect it, would you say, oh, this is going to happen in 2,000 years? No. <laughs> Wait, no, it, it, we just went over this. That's what it was talking about. Yeah, I mean, the connection of Dave, David and Saul right there. I mean, yeah. it doesn't have to match up like a Western American right. history textbook. Yep. This is the way Jews wrote. And so in the same way, we see this linguistic strategy happening when Jesus is talking about coming destruction. Mm -hmm. It's it's almost identical word for word, actually. And yeah. we, we see it happening the same way. Why would we think that in the Old Testament it happened in the way that it did and it wouldn't happen in the same way in the New Testament? Yep. Matt and I talk about these shadows of the Old Testament. What, what happened in the Old Testament is typically the same thing as what's going to happen in the New Testament. And so following a, following a hermeneutic that it all has to work the same mm -hmm. way this works exactly the same. It's a yep. really good hermeneutic. It is. Good. Now, there's some other things going on here that I kind of want to open the door for, too. And that's that for a long time, I'd say in the early 1900s, people were saying that in, in the end times, God was going to give further revelation. That he was going to give us something that we didn't have. And when we got this, that's when we would be kind of enlightened. It's extremely problematic thinking. Mm -hmm. I mean, if those words didn't set off a red flag for you watching this film, <laughs> yeah. be careful. careful yeah. But we've heard those similar words in a lot of mainstream Christianity. Especially dealing with futurist interpretation of the book of Revelation. Yeah. And so when you hear that, there was this idea that in 1929 at Rosh Hashanah, there was a, a discovery of these Ugaritic tablets. Now, people didn't really think too much about these because they weren't biblical. They, they were this idea of just these Canaanite mythology and things like that. So people didn't get too excited about it. But not too long after that, in 1947, the Dead Sea Scrolls were unearthed. And for some reason, they were kind of guarded, and it wasn't until 1991 that we kind of saw the pictures of these, and normal people were released with the scholars to be able to study yeah. these things. Now, what everybody was thinking throughout this whole time where we didn't have access to that was that this was apocalyptic revelation, that we were going to read things in the Dead Sea Scrolls that were going to show us that this was coming of end, that God finally revealed a source to us that we would understand the timing for this to happen. I think some people were disappointed when they actually started reading it. Yep. You see a lot of these apocalyptic words that I described earlier, not just in the Dead Sea Scrolls of what we knew, but also in these Ugaritic texts yep, and the things that we didn't text, yeah. know, the pagan texts, they're using the exact same terminology mm -hmm. as if they just borrowed the words from Jesus, so to speak. Yep. But the problem is, as you're reading this, we're getting ready. We're writing this book called The War Scrolls to go into war and all this kind of stuff. And then later we're going to talk about it already happened. Mm-hmm. And they're writing this as past history, like I've already said. Now, this is a little bit different than what I started talking about with these films. So this is two separate sources that are referring to the same type of thing. Now, I started the film by saying this, this is showing that most of this stuff already happened in 70 AD, but there's also another point to be made about it, and that's that everybody was getting excited thinking this doomsday thinking was finally going to pan out, and it didn't. Yep. Yeah. So, Ryan, let's take this to today. COVID-19. We have all these 
conspiracy theories thinking maybe revelation is starting yeah maybe maybe we you know these things bill gates is going to put in our right wrists or whatever we're we're getting very worked up about this Mm -hmm. and we don't have to no a lot of this was fulfilled in the past yeah if it was 70 a.d and we were talking about these and they were talking about Mm -hmm. them and it was happening Happening. (laughs) we'd have something to worry about yeah so a lot of times people go back and the biggest question that they look at is why didn't the world end at 70 AD? Because it wasn't saying that it was going to end. It was the end of the age, not the end of the world. Yeah. It's really important that you make these connections with these. So I have some friends, Ryan, that like to, that are futurists and like to interpret the Bible that way and think that, and we believe that anybody who from any culture can pick up the Bible and get an understanding of salvation from it. Sometimes we got to dig a little bit deeper to kind of get into these type of things. But one of the big things they have is that everything should be read at face value. Yeah. No apocalyptic language is out there in the Bible. Right. It's, it's all means what it says on its face. So when I first went to Bible college, I was 18 years old. And the mm-hmm. first thing they make you do, and I'm glad they did, is how to study and interpret the Bible. That was the first class because if you didn't get that, if you didn't understand it, you're going to be lost for the next Mm -hmm. four or five years of your life. And so literally class number one is we need you to get this. And so the law is to always interpret scripture literally unless you have a reason to interpret it elsewhere. Yep. So we've shown you good evidence of how to interpret these cosmic, metaphorical, symbolic types of scripture within their context in its world and within the context of the Bible. So taking Revelation at, I guess, face value, what you'd say literally, which I believe literally means the way that the author meant it to be interpreted within the literal, within the literary genre. Yes. And so we don't see that that is the way that the genre of Revelation plays out. So why should we be interpreting it that way? Yes. So let me just leave you with this thought. If you lived at the time of Christ and you're listening to the Olivet Discourse, for instance, and you're hearing all of this stuff that's coming and it happens, you're reading all this with these words that you've heard your whole life. Mm -hmm. You've interpreted that way. Now, in our westernized thinking, we're not, we haven't grown up that way. No. We're, We're not used to that. Now, I would argue that in the rest of the world, the Eastern world, this is not weird or different to no. them. They're still thinking this way. And yep. it's not because they're more backward than we are in America or things like that. It's, it's culture. It's just culture. And so if you're thinking that way, you would read this to be understood within that culture very differently to the point that I would even challenge you that when sometimes people of Eastern culture hear this westernized idea of rapture, they're kind of like blown away by yeah. it. And so one of our favorites, N.T. Wright, writes quite a bit of stuff about this. And from his Eastern culture, I think it's funny that people that are reading it don't think it's really groundbreaking. They're like, yeah, I've known known that my whole life, you Mm -hmm. know, write something I don't know. Mm -hmm. But from our Westernized view, we read this and we're like, what? Blown away by it. Calling him a heretic for it. (laughs) Yeah. And so I'm not sure that you're totally, you know, where we are with thinking, but I want to encourage you to think about that culture and to think about the Jewish language and how all of these apocalyptic type words played into that, how they were 
you know, very rampantly using those things at the time of Jesus. And it made sense because of the destruction in 70 AD. And then after that, they're all referring to it in this past sense for a long, long time. In fact, hundreds of years before anybody gets this idea to look at it differently than that. Mm -hmm. I hope this has blessed you today. I hope you are starting to glean maybe a different understanding or challenge the understandings that you've always known. And more so, I hope that this causes you to open up your Bible and get even more rooted and grounded in what the scripture actually has to share. Lord bless you and keep you. <laughs>